you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's back with money with Gabby Done. Gabby Dunn here Following up last week's apocalyptic do morning with a practical episode about how to save money at restaurants and make a personal budget. Look, I never said there wouldn't be emotional whiplash. So how is everybody doing after last week's show? Is everyone okay? I'm not. Not at all. In fact, I'm still pretty convinced everything is fucked forever. And you're going to hear a little bit of that in the interviews this week. My original plan for this episode was to offer you guys a bunch of simple, efficient tools to save a little bit of money every week. And don't worry, there's still some of that in the show, but there's also a fair amount of me challenging my guests from the personal finance industry on the system they're operating within, which I think is good. I mean, if nothing else comes out of this show, I hope I encourage all of us to pause for a moment whenever we're spending our money to ask, what am I participating in? That said... We can talk about the system all we want, but I also know that we are just trying to get through the fucking week, and that money is one of the most significant obstacles a lot of us face in that mission. Believe me, guys, I I know that it's hard, and before I started this show, I was all about the here and now and not the larger macro issues. So I know that a lot of you would probably love to fight the system in theory, but in reality are too stressed out about finding enough change in the couch cushions to do your laundry this week. And I know we've been very skeptical about the concept of personal responsibility this season. Not because I don't think people are responsible for their own actions, but because I question the idea that all of us dutifully following the marching orders of the financial industry is going to do anything to address the widespread socioeconomic inequality that that industry thrives on. But that doesn't mean there aren't reasonable steps we can all be taking to give ourselves a little more of a voice in our own financial conversations. And maybe if enough of us do that, we can all be a louder voice in the national financial conversation. So this week... We're going to start the show with someone whose videos I really love, Sarah Wilson, or as she's better known on YouTube, Budget Girl. Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson. I run a YouTube channel called Budget Girl, where I talk about getting out of debt and living a fun and frugal life on a budget while not absolutely giving up some sort of semblance of a life. So it's aggressive debt payment and then living wonderfully and living with money. Winning with money, I should say. The project started on April 10th of 2014. You put up a video telling the whole world about your debt and giving the exact amount you owe in the title, which was at the time $31,659, which is sort of this unheard of thing. What prompted you to post that video? Well, I was mad. I was a couple of years out of college. I had been deferring my debt. I had just come out of this little bout of unemployment, and I decided Never again did I want to feel that fear and that hopelessness of not knowing where my next paycheck was going to come from and then having all this debt looming and building interest. And it was just it was like my life was completely out of control and I felt like I'd made terrible decisions. And when I got to Louisiana, where I was living at the time, I'd gotten a new job and I decided that I was going to take control over my money. And then I shortly thereafter realized that no one else around me that I knew was also doing the same thing. So I decided I needed some sort of accountability, some sort of community, and why not just send it out to the entire world? And it worked. I'll be debt-free this month. Where did the debt come from? How did it happen? It was all student loans. I have a bachelor's degree in communications and journalism, and I actually took out more than I needed to pay for school to live on, like a lot of college students do, not realizing that it was dumb. It's just so much easier to, you know, add a a couple thousand dollars when you're signing that uh, financial aid loan agreement, and you don't think about it when you're 18. So wait, what were some of the things that you you cut out? Okay. Um, There are some simple things. There are some painless things. I, You know, when you use the word sacrifice, it sounds very heavy. But, you know, instead of going out mm-hmm. to fancy dinner, drinks, everything like that with your friends on a Friday night, invite them over, have a taco bar or something. Everybody brings something. You actually end up having a wonderful night 
playing cards against humanity, and it's so much cheaper. I used to do that with my group of friends in Louisiana. It doesn't have to cost money to have fun. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, On purchases, I only shop for clothes a couple times a year, like on Black Friday sales, um, and I end up getting better quality things incredibly cheaper, and my dollar stretches further. Um, I am a huge reader. I used to spend half of my college, you know, newspaper paychecks on books and now I use Overdrive and the library and go to yard sales and pick up books there instead of buying books full price in store. A lot of it's really painless. Mm-hmm. It just takes you telling your the little ego inside yourself that I want it now to shut up. Yeah, I think a lot of it is pride mm-hmm. that keeps people from budgeting. Or that they just feel it's insurmountable. I think a lot of people who struggle with debt get into this this thing about how it's just insurmountable. It's easy to feel hopeless. And especially at our age, we haven't had to deal with things, you know, projects that take 10, 15 years, like something like student loans or getting out of, say, credit card debt does. We haven't had experience plotting, staying the course for that long a period of time. And it feels like forever, Um, which is one of the reasons I decided to go extreme about it. I decided instead of being 40 when I paid off my student loans, like the government program said I would, um, their estimated payment schedule, I would be 40 when I finished paying off my student loans. Mm -hmm. I decided to sacrifice short term for a couple of years. And I promise you it wasn't bad. I've had a wonderful past three and a half years and just get it out of the way so I could spend the rest of the time between 30 and 40 living awesomely. What would be your pitch to someone who says, I'm paycheck to paycheck and I don't have any extra money? I would tell them that you can make yourself feel like you've gotten a raise if you sit down before the month begins and you make a plan on what to do with those paychecks you're going to get. It sounds not fun. I, I know it sounds not fun. But when it's it's more not fun to never know if the next thing that life throws at you is going to knock you on your ass or not. You were saying that no one around you was talking about this kind of thing. And since then, you've been updating your video titles with the exact amount of your debt every time you post a video. Um, I have. You know, that level of transparency is sort of what do you think is the value of that, even if it might be embarrassing? A lot of people, especially on the Internet, just say, like, you know, you know, don't spend everything you make and, you know, you'll be out of debt soon. And there isn't there aren't a lot of people out there actually showing you their budget and being like, this is how much money I make which is not talked about often, and Mm -hmm. then saying this is how much debt I have and this is exactly where I'm putting my money every month and the X, Y, and Z of how I'm getting out of this mess. Yeah, there's no specificity in personal finance a lot. There isn't because there's that shame of talking about how much debt you have and there's that shame of talking about how much you make, which I don't Mm -hmm. think there should be. I think there should be a lot more transparency in money. It shouldn't be such a taboo subject. When you started, what did your debt represent for you? Like what obstacles was it creating? Was it making you emotional? Oh, absolutely. I um, was just a couple of years out of college. I was working as a reporter at a newspaper. I wasn't making that much money. I was making about $25,000 a year. And it was enough to live off of in the town I lived in, in Mississippi. But I was deferring my student loans. It didn't They were just amassing all of this interest. And in the back of my head, in my everyday life, I could just feel this weight pressing down on me. And I was like, I'm going to have to take care of that one day. And then when I lost my job, everything kind of came crashing down. You know, newspapers are in a bit of a bind right now. And I got laid off at one. So and it took Mm -hmm. me a while to find a new job. So not only was I dealing with just trying to make rent, but I also had all this debt. And I decided that you know, if this ever happens to me again, I want to only have to be able to take care of myself. I don't want to have all this this debt weighing me down. Yeah, because you know that no matter what you're making, it's kind of a negative sum. That's how I felt about mine. Absolutely. And so much of your income is just immediately gone to somebody else, to some lender. And after this month, all of that money that I've been putting a debt Every single month, I'll just get to do whatever I want with. I can save. I can travel. I can, you know, invest. Um, Mm -hmm. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait for that life without debt. When are you anticipating that you're going to finish? It's going to be this month. I only have $1,000 left. Oh, no. What's going to happen to your channel? (laughs) 
It's going to keep going. No worries. Um, I plan on keeping it going. And I, I feel like people keep asking me that. Are you going to give up your channel when you're debt free? I'm like, no, my channel's going to get awesome. <laughs> Y'all <have> watched <laughs> me struggle for the past three and a half years. And now you get to watch me do awesome things because I sacrificed for a little while so that I could pay off my debt quickly. And now I get to really live like nobody else. And I get to do awesome stuff with my money. Can you explain the scorched earth thing that you were doing? I knew going in that it was going to take me several years to pay off my debt. Original projections were like five to seven years. I knew that this had to be a marathon and not a sprint. And so I couldn't go crazy at the beginning because, like I said, marathon, not a sprint. So I had to set aside savings accounts and sinking funds and plan for things to happen in my life. I couldn't just throw every single penny I got that I didn't need for rent for food at debt um, because I knew that over the next several years – I'd need a new car. I'd probably have to move. I might get sick. Something might happen. Um, and, you know, along the way, there are like Christmases mm-hmm. and birthdays and weddings and stuff like that. So I was saving for things that were upcoming. I was very planned in that. This year, I cut all of my sinking funds. The only thing that is getting my money right now is my student loans other than the basic necessities I need to survive. And in the past, since January, when I started, I have paid $12,000. So $12,000 in six months by going scorchers. And that's on a $35,000 pre-tax salary. So you left some you left some space for stuff that you couldn't predict. Absolutely. It's essential, especially when you're planning on doing this for the next three or four years, which is why I didn't go scorched earth before this. Stuff Mm -hmm. will happen. Yeah, exactly. You cut out sounds like, hey, cut out anything that makes life enjoyable. (laughs) (laughs) I I know it sounds that way, but really a budget gives you freedom because, and I know, I know everyone's felt this because I always felt this when I was just spending kind of hand over fist, you know, just whatever I had in my wallet, whatever I had in my bank account, I always felt guilty. You know, you go out to dinner or you go out Mm -hmm. to a movie with friends or you go to a theme park or you do something and you feel guilty because you know, in the back of your head, that that money should really be going towards something else. When you do a budget, you plan a certain amount of money to have fun with or to eat out with or to travel with. And it gives you complete freedom because when you have a budget that has all of that fun stuff accounted for, all of your future goals accounted for, and all of your bills accounted for, it's complete freedom to enjoy that experience as long as you don't go over the budget amount you've set. Yeah, it sucks because a lot of times with this show, we talk about systemic issues, too, although this episode less so. But it's like this idea that someone like you is working a full time job but has to cut out some pleasures in life, like when you should be able to afford you you should just have a higher wage, you know, but your YouTube channel is just more of a personal um, betterment situation. Right. And you right? can fight the power and still deal with your own situation. It, it's great to fight for overall change, and it's so important, and I love that that's one of the things that you do here. But you can't ignore the fact that currently things are the way they are, and currently you're probably broke in debt and not thrilled about it. So a lot of people think that their debt defines them. Um, now that you're officially about to become debt-free, will you think of yourself differently? Is there like a – like over the past three years has like self-esteem – been more on the rise? I would say yes. Dealing with my debt so proactively, I have definitely had to put stock in myself, figuring out how to make more money, figuring out how to advance my career, and really having a stone-cold, hard, good damn reason to do it because I wanted to be out of debt as fast as possible. During that, I had to negotiate higher salaries, which is something so few people do because they don't have the confidence. And I was able to do that because I've just had to build the willpower over the years, build the budgeting muscles. Yeah, you have a goal. Mm -hmm. I have a goal. Coming up, some great life hacks to save money at restaurants and clothing stores mixed with a debate about feminism and Ivanka Trump. So basically, it's peak bad with money. Stay tuned. Bobby Rebel is the author of a book called How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, which pretty much works as an alternative title for this podcast. 
She's got some great ideas about little ways to save money on a daily and weekly basis. And some other ideas that, well, you guys will see how I feel about them. I'm very shy. This is what I was referring to in the intro when I said there are some sections of this episode where I quote unquote challenge my guests. As you'll hear, that was probably a charitable way of saying call them out on some serious bullshit, but they were good sports. So here's Bobby. I guess I'm, I've been focusing a lot on the system and I sort of wanted to try to do a, a really normative episode for me, which is sort of a, a tips and tricks episode where it's like, yes, everything is fucked. But like, how do you? <laughs> so like, Let's what, be a little more optimistic. Come on. I mean, no, the system is bro- I'm in a real dark place. The system oh, no. is broken. But I'm going to cheer you up, Gabby. <laughs> but... Maybe there's something you can do for yourself. So like, what does it mean to be a financial grown up, and why is that important? It is important because you can only control yourself because all this stuff that happens around you is going to happen. And yes, you can work for the greater good and all this other stuff, but you've got to, at the heart of it, take care of yourself. It's like, you know, on the airplane, when they tell you, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself first, and then mm-hmm. you can help other people. Mm-hmm. It's like that. So you need to take ownership of what's going on with yourself first. And that's what being a financial grown-up really is. So, like, if you're getting out of school, um, you may have a ton of debt. Just focus on yourself. I mean, find a way to knock that down and don't worry about other people. So that may mean don't go out with your friends and spend a ton of money, you know. Or if you want to see them, find a way to do it. Just have them over to your house or whatever and just say to them, I'm doing this for me. And I don't really care what you guys are doing, but this is what's important to me. I'm going to deal with my own finances and own it in and of yourself. And that's really what being a financial grown-up is, is just being true to yourself first and foremost so that you can then do other things and help other people. Well, I think a lot of it is talking about it because I think there's a stigma where you have to sort of pretend like – all these young people who don't have any money are sort of pretending to each other that they do have money. It's actually really interesting to hear my friends be like, I actually can't go out. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So what else can we do? Yeah, I mean, that that's an awesome thing. I mean, I'm having five friends over to my house for brunch next week just because we want to get together. And we, and we're like older and have more money, but we don't want to spend the money on just going out. We want to hang out with each other and we'll spend like one sixth of the money and have a better time because we're not sitting in a restaurant. Yeah, we'll cook. We'll have coffee. Yeah. Yeah, I do that all the time. I do walking around Central Park all the time because it's free. And I just tell people that. And I mean, look, honestly, I'm on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. People have the money to go out for coffee, but I'd rather walk. And I tell them I'm going to burn calories and I'm not going to spend money. And I say that <laughs> and they love it. And these women, some of them can, they can definitely afford coffee. Let me tell you, Gabby. But they're, <laughs> but they're happy to save the money too. And that's, people don't say that enough. People are busy, you know, trying to show off and this and that. Frankly, I rent a lot of clothing these days because I just don't want to, that's just not where I want my money to go. Before you came on the show, you sent a, a list of actual tips and tricks. So some of these are get all the same hangers and make sure your clothing is hung up the same way. You will literally know what you have and won't buy something you already have and will wear what you have more. So, okay. So can you talk? So we're going to go through them. Right. So can you I talk mean, a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I love these. First of all, I just love these actual specific things because it's kind of like my friend David Bach with the latte thing, except not buying a latte. If you just don't buy a latte, it won't actually do much. You have to actually put the money in retirement funds or whatever. Wait, you're friends with the guy that did the latte factor? Yeah, I know David Bach. Hasn't that been super debunked? Um, I agree with it, but I think we need to say more is what I would say. I would yeah. say it's misunderstood. And I do talk about that in the book. The latte factor is basically the idea that if you he, – he was finding in his research that people would say, I have no money to save, and yet they were going to Starbucks and they're buying a latte every day, let's say. So that let's say it's $4. So if you, instead of spending the $4 every day, put that $4 in a retirement fund when you were, let's say, 22 years old and you do it every single day and it adds up and it compounds, you'll have a huge sum of money when you go to retire. So that's – accurate, but it's generally not enough is what I would say. So it's not a bad thing to do. The idea is it's really meant to point out that we all spend money on things that we don't necessarily account for. So people will say, I literally have no money. I cannot save for retirement, 
But in fact, that's not true. You're making a choice. My counter argument to that is you're just essentially telling poor people that they can't enjoy life. <laughs> I Yeah, and I totally, I totally get that. And I think his point is about automation, that you, know, you just need to automate. And yeah, you can have your coffee. And he's gotten really defensive about that. But yeah, no, you totally, you have to, you have to enjoy your life. And, you know, that's really just meant to say, you know, be aware of the small things that you are buying and the choices that you're making. I mean, I think that you can absolutely have a latte, but maybe you don't have to do it every day. Or maybe instead of cutting out lattes, you know, organize your closet and don't buy clothing that you don't need. Okay. Uh, you, we talked about making plans with friends and making sure that it's in the budget and And your friend's budget. Do that for them. You might be the one with more money. Right. Because you're not saying don't hang out with your friends. You're just saying do it in like a different way. Right, right, right. No, like pick the better restaurant. Like, so for example, I was going to go to dinner with my brother and his husband and my husband recently. And my brother picked the place and he picked a place that was crazy expensive. And Hmm. I was like, what are you doing? And in his mind, he didn't think about that. He thought, well, it's mid, it's, it's located between us. So I'm being considerate of my sister because I picked a place that will take us each 20 minutes to get to. Mm-hmm. He didn't even think about the money. And I was like, I'm happy to go to Chelsea and meet you. Let's go somewhere cheaper. Right. And so instead of going to a place with like $50, I kid you not, $50 entrees. I mean, I was like, this is not happening. We went someplace with like, you know, $15, $20 entrees. And it was a really great meal. And who cares? I went to Chelsea, whatever. Right. He just picked a place that he thought was mutually convenient and wasn't like his priority was convenience for me. So he thought he was mm-hmm. being considerate. And I was like, no, I have three kids with tuition. I do not want to spend that money on dinner with you. I just want to see you. Right. So it so, wasn't even like on purpose. Yeah. That he was doing that to me. Not to me. So you know just I mean. call stuff into question. Call it out. Yeah. Or just yeah. you don't even have to say that. You know, if it's something where you don't want them to know it's about the money, just be like, oh, I heard this other place is amazing. Let's go here. Mm-hmm. And people mm-hmm. 99, like literally always. <laughs> I just be pictured like, cool. being like, <laughs> I just pictured being like, this place is amazing. We should go here. And it's just IHOP. Anyway, you could so, but like people like IHOP. <laughs> I love it. No, I people love like it. People like Waffle House. Why is that a bad thing? It's not. It's just, I just meant selling it as like, I've heard of this new hip place. Okay. There's other stuff like buying shoes and getting uh, protective bottoms on them so they'll last longer. Uh, right. Well, that's then, like, I mean, that's like with everything. I mean, make things yeah. last, you know, like take care of your stuff. Call ahead to restaurants and BYOB to restaurants, which I've done uh, a bunch, and that you can bring your own bottle of wine, which is like $13 versus paying $13 for one glass. Exactly. Uh, and they'll believe- sometimes charge you like a little fee, a but that's fine. A corking fee, which is yeah. bullshit. Yeah, it Whatever. is. It is, but it's still usually, like, it's, it's going to be less. Yeah. And also, you get the wine that you want, and you know what you're buying or whatever. Right. The Coppola wine. Okay. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, but I always... <laughs> I get like, I'll pick one with a horse on the front. I just, I don't know anything about wine. So if you have to pay for something and you don't have the cash for it, if you put it on a credit card, you're going to pay it off with interest, but you recommend just asking if you can pay in installments and that way you don't ha- you're not paying to the credit card company. Yep. I do this anyway, whether I need to or not, just because why pay someone the whole amount of money up front if you don't have to? Usually they mm-hmm. don't care. They just want to get their money. And if you have to pay some huge amount of money for, let's say, you know, a medical thing and it's going to be $3,000 and you can't pay it, you know, you can pay it over six months, let's say. You could put it on a credit card, but then you're going to pay interest. If you just tell them, can you put me on a six-month plan? I mean, I've never been turned down. Right. Ever. Especially that's even smart. down payments. Just say, oh, that's a really high down payment. Can I pay a smaller down payment? The most common response is, well, what down payment will work for you? That's almost always what you get. Well, what do you have in mind? They ask you and you could say, can I pay $100 today? I've done that with the IRS. There's also a thing where like I've done a thing where with insurance where there was like a down payment and I felt weird about it. I was like, no, that's just what it costs. Right. And the person I'm seeing was like, well, you can just go back and say you can only do this number. And then they were just like, "Okay," And I was like, wait, what? Exactly. They don't care. Yeah. It's not even like it's going to be a fight. It's, it's, it's the easiest negotiation. And especially if you want to do something that makes them not use a credit card, they pay 3%. They lose 3% when you go to a credit card. So they're really yeah. happy to work with you if they can avoid the credit card. It's a win-win. Yeah. It's so easy. I mean, it seems embarrassing to ask because I always feel like they'll think I'm a freeloader. But then they just say yes. And you're like, oh, why was I so scared? Yeah. You could also, by the way, ask just for a discount in general. Isn't that crazy? And they'll usually knock it off a little. 
That, that's what yeah. I said. I was like, I was like, well, I got recommended this place because it was cheap, but now you're making it seem like it's expensive. So, and they were like, oh, we're sorry, and they made it less. Yes, it was so you can, crazy. You can get so much stuff by just asking, and just but you have to be really nice. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about chatting up salespeople and asking for discounts, which feels like the whitest thing in the world. <laughs> feels like oh, this is what? like why? It just wait. Why? I don't know because it's it seems like this real because I think I think people of color have different experiences in really? stores than we do. Yeah. I can't. I don't know. Tell me. I don't, I've just I had um, Stephanie Beatrice, uh, who's a, an actress on Brooklyn Nine Nine on the show last season and she was talking about how when she started getting money for uh, acting on the show she went into all of these like high end stores and was sort of treated because she's Latina was sort of treated by the salespeople as if there was no way she could afford that and uh, and was like not treated very well so I think I could see a situation where she would not want to like call attention to herself by asking for a discount does that make sense? I get that what I would, my advice to her would be to be a regular customer at, you know, the same places and get to know the salespeople as people so that they don't see her as, you know, a color or whatever. And I know it's be so a little more human. I mean, it sucks. I think there's, you know, it, she shouldn't have to do that. Right. Um, it, it reminds me of this thing where particularly white people are just like, <laughs> well, I should have a discount. No, but it's you know what? Like everyone, that. everyone should have the confidence of just a white dude walking into a store. <laughs> well, that's, you know, do you know Jess Bennett? Do you know the book uh, Feminist Fight Club? Oh, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. it's okay. So I'm going to recommend this book, Feminist Fight Club by Jessica Bennett to all of your listeners. Um, and she has something in there and it's so awesome and it's become my mantra. And it's what would Josh do? Okay. And what that means is whenever you have doubts, like your friend walking into the store and wanting the discount, you think, what would your average white male do? Like, instead of saying, oh, I have a doctor's appointment. Can I take an hour off? Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'll promise I'll be back. I'll work 20 extra hours to make up for the one hour. I'm so sorry. He would just, like, leave and go to a doctor's appointment (laughs) and then come back. So, I mean, I even apply this at Reuters. I was so crazy busy. I was writing the book while I was working there full time. And I had to be at work at 10, but I was supposed to get an hour lunch and the lunch was never happening. So I just started coming in at 11. But here's the crazy thing, Gabby. No one said anything. Yeah, I just like people would say, oh, when do you get in tomorrow? 11. And that's what Josh would do. So whenever you have doubts, like what would your typical youngish, you know, middle aged youngish white dude do and yeah. just emulate that? I know. But and then everyone's worked. like, but I, yeah, no, but then so, yes, I know. But then sometimes people go, oh, well, she's a real bitch. True. <laughs> but whatever. Oh, you can't win as a woman. Um. So, OK, so sign up for ebates for cashback what is all yeah. this so these are things you need to do so you sign up for ebates and these are like plugins on your computer well acorns is an app but ebates on your computer you just sign up and it sort of acts in the background and every time you go to any basically any site where you might purchase something it will pop up and say would you like to have a three percent rebate would you like ten percent rebate you know which and you say activate now and then they will literally send you money what do you mean? Or like, they send you a check? They will send in the you mail? a check. Yes. What? Yes. What is Acorns? So Acorns, it rounds up if you buy things. It'll round. So if you buy something and it's like a dollar ninety seven, it will take three dollars and put it into your savings three three cents. I'm sorry, and put it into your savings account, and you'll save a lot of money. You won't even feel it. Interesting. And then there's Honey. You said for finding yes. discount codes. Yes. Yes. Um, get Honey. It's on your computer, not your phone. You have to. It's like a, a plug in. And it also will pop up. So you're about to check out to buy something and it will come up and it'll say, would you like me to apply discount codes? And it will literally search the web for you and find if there are any discount codes. Because I'm really lazy with that stuff. I know I should always find a discount code, but it's a pain in the neck. So it Mm -hmm. will literally, and you see it like working. You see like the numbers going by and it's testing which one is the best discount code and then it applies it. Ha, I know. Okay. All right. So then this last one is. See if your city has something like the NYC ID card, which has discounts. So you can go to museums for free, get a library card and the, yeah, so there's like a lot of free stuff. Yeah. It's kind of like at your job, you know, it's the same thing, especially if you're a freelancer, so you don't have a corporate job. I mean, most cities have a ton of free stuff. So just, Mm -hmm. you know, get the free stuff. Mm -hmm. And usually you just have to know what the free stuff is. Do you think that financial literacy is a feminist issue? Yes, of course it is. 
It totally is because I think if you don't have the facts and you don't know what's going on, and first of all, you don't even have the information to know how underpaid you probably are, how do you fight that? I mean, I truly suspect that I was underpaid in various jobs versus the men in in the other jobs. And I think it's incredibly frustrating because people just say, well, she has a husband. I mean, that's even worse, you know, or she'll get married or her dad supporting her. There's all these perceptions and and it stinks, you know? I mean, I even have had men that I've known that have said this. I know this woman in my group is paid less because she asked for too little, but what am I going to do about it? I don't know. Help her. They don't. They don't. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. So, you know, I think that you have to just be your own advocate and you have to find the value in yourself and stand up for yourself or leave. I mean, it's really hard. It's a really know, hard some- thing. Every woman that's underpaid is somebody's mother, someone's sister. You know, they're supporting men like, you know, I have I know. a son. So it's really important to just kind of talk more. And I will tell you one thing I've been very proactive about is that I do, you know, among my peer group and among my professional peers, especially, I will share information about and I, I can't do it on here here because I'm under contract not to reveal it. But, you know, when I'm being ha. paid under certain for certain things, if I do speaking fees and things like that, I mean, we do talk amongst ourselves so that we know. Right, because right, right. otherwise you really don't know. And I have been hired for things post Reuters that I have been paid pretty well for. And I don't think I would have asked for that money had I not known from my peer group, from these wonderful women, what the going rate is. Mm -hmm. So I think the best thing that women can do is start really sharing actual numbers with each other. It's really important. It's tough for me, uh, uh, especially on this show, because there's a lot of like feminist financial role models that are just like among the richest people in the world. And there's a lot of like, this idea that you should try to lean into capitalism or like a lot of the advice that comes is stuff that assumes that you are a certain type of like able-bodied cis straight white woman who, and that's great for you to rise to the top, but there's like all these other communities that like can't really behave like Josh because if they do, then they're the angry black woman or they're causing trouble because they're, you know, representative of all queer people. And I guess we can't hire lesbians because they're, they're bossy or whatever it is. Like it sucks. That's why I wanted to do this episode because I wanted to give practical advice because I think that's important on a financial show. It's just hard to, to do because not all of it can be taken. I agree. Does that makes sense. It, it, what makes, was, it makes total sense. And, and I think, so that's why I didn't l- really want to care about Cheryl Sandberg's book. <laughs> did you actually, did you read it though? Just no, out of curiosity. Why, what no, was, okay. what, what, what did you not like? No, I, I, I basically agree with you. I mean, I think it was a very narrow focused view of the world and the assumptions that she made, you know, they were truthful to her, but her right. call to action, you know, was sort of in a bubble. Right. I mean, I'm finding that like the system is sort of rigged against a lot of these people. And I want to be able to sort of give them practical things that they can do, which I think your your tips were great. It's just like sucks to be like reading these books about how you should be working harder when I think anybody who's working should be able to afford basic, you know, health care and food. No, I I agree without doing these tips, you know. (laughs) I agree completely. I think we have a really long way to go as a country. And I think that some things, I mean, one thing, I don't know if you want to talk about this fiduciary rule at all, but we had talked about that idea that, um, you know, a lot of Americans, they assume that when they're given financial advice, that it is always in their best interest. And, you know, right now we're at a very pivotal time because this rule looked like it was happening. And with the current administration, it looks like it's kind of like the can. What's that expression? The can being kicked down the road. I mean, it's kind of being postponed and postponed and postponed. And and a lot of people that I talk to think that it's probably not going to happen anytime soon, if ever. Um, what during is this, that? It's the fiduciary rule, which basically would say, and this is like stating the obvious, that if someone is giving you investment advice, like a broker, it has to actually be the best investment for you. Oh, right, like right, actually right. be good for you, not just suitable. And suitable could mean anything. So they could right. be making, as of now, people can tell you can sell you something and they don't have to tell you that they're making a massive commission. So it's really important. That's a really big warning. I mean, obviously, look, if you're talking about somebody who's barely earning enough to get through their life, investing is not their biggest priority. But right. even more so when they do start investing, this is something that they need to just say, are you a fiduciary? Are you 
you know, are you on my side? Yes. Basically, you have to ask if they are fiduciary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Otherwise, they're just getting commission off giving you advice that benefits them. Exactly. And there's like I said, and like we were saying before, it's OK for people to get paid if they say I have these three products and they're all equally good for you. And this, you know, but product A, I will get a commission. And let's say each one really is the same. Only one they get a commission on. And you're OK with that. That's fine. People yeah. can get paid, but there's a lot of people out there that can give you advice just for a fee, but then people don't want to pay the fee. So right. it gets tricky. So a lot yeah. of times, you know, nothing's really free. So you have to ask, how are you getting paid? And I think a lot of people that are poor, frankly, get suckered into buying things that they think will be good and protect them. And it kind of becomes a downward spiral where they think they're buying the right insurance, but yet they're sold a product that's useless when it really comes to it. Or they're told that they're putting their money into an investment that will be really good and will protect their family. But in fact, the person lied and they didn't know or they didn't have the financial knowledge to read the document and know that this was not the truth. Because people often, they'll, you know, you go to a house closing, let's say you are going to buy a property and you've got piles and piles of paper and you're just being told to sign all these papers. Well, who's going to sit there and read them? You've got 10 people staring at you waiting to sign these papers. Yeah, I've gone to sign contracts and I've started to read them and people have been like, you're going to read this whole thing. And I get like, annoyed. Right. Yeah, I'm going to read this whole fucking thing. <laughs> right. Because when you leave and I talk about this in the book, when you leave, whether it's a car or a house or a contract, you're the only one that owns it. At the end of the day, like you have to fulfill that contract. And if there's something in there that got in there that you didn't catch or hopefully you have someone on your side, like a manager or an agent in that case, that's that's looking out for you. But there can be things in there. And there are so many famous people, big Mm -hmm. rock stars, movie stars that have been screwed over by their managers, the people that they trusted. It's on you. And that goes back to what I was saying about being a financial grown up, that it's on you, you and you alone. Take care of yourself first. And by taking care of yourself first, you can then take care of your family. Did you read Ivanka's book? I did not. I don't really follow her. Do you? So, okay. So, yeah, you know, she's in the book, which is really random. She, she's but in we can the talk book. About that. And yeah, she's in the book. And your website talks about her as, as a sort of financial role model. So yeah. what is? Well, I mean, I think that she did a good job in terms of creating her own brand and her own identity. And I have to tell you, around New York City, people say the nicest things about her. She was known as a real, I've never met her. She's known as a really nice person around town. She is, honestly, I don't know her. I've never met her, but that was her reputation. But the point about Ivanka being the book is, so this friend reached out to her and honestly, Ivanka wrote me a lovely note just saying, what a great project. How can I help? And here's a story. And I loved her story because her story is actually about the fact that you know, even if you're loaded, don't be a spoiled brat is basically her story. And I think that's yeah. actually kind of a good message. You yeah, know? but she's completely like she had this brand that she was building and she com- and it's been completely fucked. Like she had this brand that yeah. was like about working women and it was about caring about women. And then she's in this White House where like reproductive health is being slashed and attacked and. Uh, women of color are being attacked and like it's just this it's just whatever she was building has and like your story sending you that story and being known around New York City as a nice person is like a perfect example whatever she was building has been like completely destroyed well I would hope that she will become an advocate more of an advocate for women and no, Ivanka, she if can't you're to this. She, you know, she's in there. She's got his ear. So hopefully she you know, doesn't, though, because she, it doesn't matter. Like she's she's completely fucked herself because if she ever cared about women, because she doesn't have his ear, he's just going to do whatever he wants. And like she's complicit in this like horrible thing. And it's like hard to take seriously a book that's like, well, women should work when her dad is slashing uh, parental leave. Yeah. All I can do is agree with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I, can't, I know. I can't, I know. I can't really defend that. Um, I know. And like I said, I've never met Ivanka. All I can tell you is she's a friend of a friend. Three years ago, she was asked to give me an anecdote. And she she did. And so she did do that to support financial literacy um, three years ago. And I think that her story is good because at the end of the day, it's not only don't be a spoiled brat. It's also, you know, whether you're rich or poor, you're not your parents. 
You're not your parents unless you're in your parents' uh, Nazi administration. Okay. 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 Well, I'm, I'm going to take that one. Um, it's fine. That's what the that's what the show's about. <laughs> but I I think probably it's a very I would be very interested to read Ivanka's story in your in your book. Yeah, read the story, and you know what? Just detach from who it's from if that bothers you. But I think that the message is good, which is just rich or poor, whatever your starting line. You have to own your own being a financial grown-up. Be human. Be kind to people. Be supportive. And, and you know, be a good grown-up. Yeah, yeah. Your circumstances can change at any time. So financial literacy is good for anybody, even people who think they don't need it. Make the best decision you can for where you are now. Yeah. So that's Bobby, who really does have a lot of great ideas. And I'm grateful to her for coming on the show. Because if we can't have uncomfortable conversations about money, especially about women and money, we're not going to make any progress. Which is the goal, right? Step one, empower everyone, especially marginalized people, to make better financial choices. Step two, systematically dismantle the patriarchy. Step three, get donuts. After the break, we'll continue exploring step one with the Today Show's Gene Chatsky. Stay tuned. So why do all these tips and tricks matter? Sure, we all believe in some amount of personal financial literacy, but what kind of life is it in service of? To end the show this week, I zoomed out a little bit with Jean Chatsky, host of the Her Money podcast and the financial editor for the Today Show. Why did you start focusing money on, on women? Because we don't talk about money enough. And despite the fact that we've started to make headway in in earning more, it didn't feel to me like we were stepping up to do take the next step to invest it and really run our own futures. Um, I mean, there's so many examples of this, plus the fact that women live a lot longer than men and we still have less money than men. And so we need to take that less money and make it go much further it just felt to me like there was a yawning need for content about money specifically for women. And then there's also the fact that, so I go around and I do a lot of speaking. And when I'm in a mixed group, when I'm in a room of men and women, women don't really talk about money. They don't ask the questions they want to ask. They don't make the comments they want to make. But when I'm in a room of all women, the conversation is much more free-flowing. So I know, for example, that we get a lot of male listeners on my podcast and we welcome them. But, you know, this is meant to be the dressing room at Lowman's. <laughs> I mean, listen, you're never going to have to convince me on getting rid of all men. Okay, so uh, <laughs> many of my listeners are are younger people and um, and I think the idea of, of personal financial responsibility can feel really overwhelming. Um, what do you think is the most compelling reason for people in that sort of position to stop and think about their financial behavior? Two compelling reasons, and I know you asked for one, but the first <laughs> is that you can't get time back. You can't get yesterday back. And when it comes to saving money and investing money, Time is the best friend that we have because it just the more time you have, the more your money can work for you and grow for you. And it just multiplies. And and so that's the reason to try to do it sooner rather than later. And if you ask any older person and I'm probably I'm not quite double your age, I'm 52. If you ask any person from 40 on up what they wish when it comes to their money, they're all going to tell you the same thing. They wish they had gotten smarter sooner. They wish they had started just saving a little bit more sooner. And the second reason is that tomorrow the transmission on your car might go. You know, when we focus so much on the future, we do a little bit of a disservice because yes, you have to save for the future and yes, you have to think long term, but emergencies happen every single day. And if you can get yourself to make some good decisions in the present, then you don't have to put it on a credit card tomorrow. 
And and for anybody who's ever had an overwhelming amount of credit card debt, and I have had an overwhelming amount of credit card debt, you never want to open those bills. And so if you can just get yourself out of that situation, life will be much, much happier. How much debt did you have? Half a year's salary. So just to put it in perspective, I mean, because it's not going to sound that much in dollars, but when I got out of college... I made $11,500 in my first job. I was an editorial assistant Mm -hmm. and I had six grand in credit card debt. Yeah. Percentage wise, that seems it's like too much. At 19% interest. You know, that was really, really difficult. But at the same time, I made some stupid moves. I didn't, I had some money in the bank because you can't live on $11,500. Even in 1986, I got a second job. I taught SATs on the side and I put the money that I was earning at the second job or doing some freelance writing, I would just put that in savings and tell myself, oh, how great is this? I'm saving money. But I was saving money and I had this credit card debt at um, 19%, which which made absolutely no sense. So eventually I, I turned it around and I started taking the money out of savings and paying off the credit card debt and then rebuilding the savings. So you would recommend paying off the credit card debt first? Yeah, I would recommend paying off the credit card debt first. I think it's helpful if you can have, you know, even a couple thousand dollars saved because that's insurance against credit card debt. You know, there is an argument to be made that if you get, say, a tax refund for $3,000, split the difference, put half of it into an emergency account where you can use it in an emergency and throw half of it against your credit card debt. It's tough because people, like you said, you can't plan for stuff. So people have debt that they like couldn't plan for, like a medical bill or something. And then that whole tax return gets eaten up by that. And then it's just tough to be like, you need to do both. And I think a lot of young people feel overwhelmed by like, okay, how do I have a retirement and also a savings account and also pay off this debt and also pay off student loans? And it's like, what do you, what do you prioritize In general, you prioritize the thing that's most expensive. So whenever you're looking at an either or when it comes to your money, you want to look at where you get the biggest bang for the buck. So in many cases, that is the credit card debt because when you're paying credit card debt off at 25% or 24% or 19%, that is equal to a 19% return on your money. Student loan debt, although the numbers are so big that I know it weighs on people, the interest rates are usually much, much lower. And so it's not costing you as much. And so it's better to pay that off over time. The save for retirement, if you work for a company where you get matching dollars, that's an incredible return on your money. And you want to try not to let that go. But but I would say as far as those priorities go, If you've got high interest rate credit card debt, split the money 50-50 so that you're building that emergency cushion of a couple thousand dollars while you're paying off the credit card debt. Once you've got that thousand or two thousand dollars, throw it all against the credit card debt until the credit card debt is gone Mm -hmm. and then work on the retirement account. Something that comes up a lot on this show is the idea that millennials are at a more serious disadvantage uh, because we entered the workforce in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. So do you agree that we're facing a unique set of challenges? Are there non-traditional solutions that we're just like not thinking of? I don't agree in part because I know a lot of people who really didn't get started until they were 30 or 35 or 40. And if you put your mind to it at any age, you can really make up that time. I mean, my perspective is colored a little bit because I came out of school in 1986 and the very next year we had 1987 Mm -hmm. and the stock market cratered 20 percent in a single day. And so you know, I, I came through that and it was a tough time to get jobs again and and people survived. Now, was it as extended a period of time as it was for the millennials? No, it, it wasn't. And I don't want to take away from how difficult that situation actually was. But if you don't get your act together financially until you're closer to 30, as long as you are from that point on going to be a consistent saver and going to live within your means, you're going to be okay. 
you know, waiting until 40, waiting until 50, it gets much harder. Yeah. A lot of it is just starting early. Even, even if you don't have anything, we had a a woman, um, Bola Shakumbi from Clever Girl Finance on last, uh, the retirement episode. And she was talking about how she drove to the bank with like a dollar (laughs) and just put it in savings because they they wouldn't accept it online. So much of this, I think, can be solved with the mind games that we play with ourselves. I've been doing the Today Show for a long time, and and one of the smartest financial hacks that I ever heard, one of our camera guys said his wife and he save every $5 bill. And mm. and they've been doing it for years. This is how they pay for vacations. It's how they pay for holidays. Sometimes they put the money away for the future. But they just pull all the fives out of their wallets and that adds up. And I know a lot of people don't use cash anymore, right? I've got, you know, we we Venmo and maybe we'll never have a $5 bill in our wallet again. But you can use something like Digit, which despite the fact Digit's an app and, and it's an app that looks into your bank accounts and it helps you figure out how much you can save. And then it actually moves that money into savings and it gives you overdraft protection. And a lot of people are very unhappy because Digit just started charging Two ninety nine a month, which you oh, know, no. I know they did, and people are upset, understandably. But the more you save, the fee actually goes down over time, percentage wise. But my feeling is that two ninety nine is is not a lot of money if it's going to get you to save hundreds of dollars or even a hundred dollars a month, because it's really more about the habit of doing it. Yeah, or you maybe you just set an alarm on your phone. And that and that'll get you in the habit of like, oh, it's this day. It's savings day, you know, exactly. Or every time you I don't know, think about something that that you that you like to do or that you just do habitually every time you take your birth control pill. Maybe you put a dollar into savings. (laughs) One of the main distillations from the conversations I've had on this show is that Uh, financial well-being has a lot to do with forcing yourself to think about the future, even if you feel like you're in crisis in the present. I would disagree. I would say financial well-being has a lot to do with putting systems in place so that you don't have to think about the future, even if you're in crisis in the present. It's just tough because I feel like there's such a duality going on on this show, which is, um, And that's why we're doing this episode about like practical tips, because it's like, okay, here are the things that you can actually do, such as like setting an alarm and and knowing that you're going to save that day. Uh, But also uh, the system is purposefully confusing uh, and actually kind of thrives off of how screwed you are. Enjoy, (laughs) you know, (laughs) there is no doubt there's like way too much mumbo jumbo financial lingo out there. You know, no, no doubt that there are a lot of people who thrive off the fact that you don't understand what they're trying to sell you. But A, if you don't understand it, you should never buy it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also doesn't have to be that complicated. Like I was writing a book and this was maybe 10 years ago and I was in the shower and I had been doing this personal finance reporting for a good decade already. And I realized during this shower that it there are five things that you have to do with money. And if you do them, then you don't have to do anything else. And one of them is actually optional. So you've got to make some money. Mm-hmm. You've got to spend less than you make on a consistent basis. You have to invest the money that you're not spending so that it can work for you. You've got to have some insurance and a will. So that a disaster, whether it's a car accident or a hurricane or a death, can't take it away from you or your family. And number five, I think you have to give back in a way that is meaningful to you. That is that is my philosophy. You know, if you don't buy into it, then it can be optional. But I think it makes you feel good. And I think it, it is a big happiness booster. And if you can do those things all the time and you can put many of them on autopilot, you don't have to do anything else and you'll be fine. There's just a, a, a lot of skepticism from my listeners about the whole like financial industry. Um, yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, yeah, because it seems like a lot of the stuff is like stacked against working people or low income people or people of color, or people from marginalized communities. And um, do you agree with those concerns? And like, how do we reconcile those feelings with 
like a, a financial industry that's like, it's your, it's your fault, so make it better versus like, oh, well, all of this shit happened to our generation. Yeah, I totally, I think they're absolutely valid concerns and I don't see that I have a way to solve them. And so I don't focus my energies there. And I would, I would say, look, there are a lot of people who go out and protest things and I think mm-hmm. that's great and you, you spend, you know, but you can spend so much of your time making noise about situations that you don't like when maybe you could be spending some of that time doing something that would actually help you. Look, I've been doing this long enough to know that I can do absolutely nothing about the economy, but I can do a lot about my own personal economy. Totally. It's just, that's what a lot of personal finance is, is like, and not in a necessarily bad way, but it's like a self-interested thing of like, yeah, you can only control yourself, so... Yeah, but okay, so it's very zen. It is a little zen. It's also if you don't do it, you are up Schitt's Creek. Yeah. Because if you look at the direction Washington is heading, right, 25 years ago, maybe closer to 30 years ago now, 401ks were invented and they bye bye pensions, right? Right. Pensions that our, our grandparents had, they just went away. And now health insurance is more expensive every single year. And if you watch the tea leaves, the HSA, the health savings account, which is basically the 401k for health, is becoming more important. And and whether you're a Democrat or a Republican and you look at what's what's coming, they are going to be a bigger deal in the future. Mm-hmm. Whether you want it to be on you or not, it's all going to be on you. And so you can try to change the system. And I have a lot of respect for people who serve in public office and try to change the system. But at the same time, you're trying to change the system. You also have to save yourself. Yeah, you have to work within it, unfortunately, unless you want to like opt out of capitalism, which I'm so close to doing every second of every day. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So Uh, we haven't talked about this a lot on the show, but I'm curious, are there any tips for people who work primarily in cash, like undocumented workers or sex workers or people who work for tips like at restaurants? Like, do you have any ideas for people who work mostly in cash? Is there a way that that would work better for them or is should they just, you know, convert the cash into formats where they can follow more mainstream steps? The key to working um, primarily in cash is coming up with a system that will allow you to save effectively mm-hmm. because cash, as we well, we know this from research, but cash goes through our fingers much more quickly than any other form of currency. Yeah. And so so I think that the big struggle besides where to keep all that money is is coming up with some sort of a way to save effectively. I was at a credit union conference yesterday in New York and you know there are credit unions now for people who work in the pot industry mm-hmm. because they have trouble figuring out what to do with their profits, but there are also credit unions sprouting up for people who are undocumented. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, you know, where you can look for institutions that can help you get a a bit of a leg up. What's the one tip that you would give, or is there one, like a a tip, practical tip that someone who is young and working paycheck to paycheck could take right now as they listen to this? Yeah, save 2% more. And and wherever you're starting, if you're starting at zero, save 2%. And if you're starting at... 4% 4% save 6%. I, I like people to be saving about 15% of what they're bringing in. Um, but I also know that trying to get there, if you're starting from nothing, is impossible. So just ratchet it up by 2%. There's some research out there that people can do 2% without noticing. So this episode was a little bit hard for me, as I'm sure you can tell, because I wanted to do something on the show where I give actual practical advice. I wanted to have people on who could help you save money. But I'm also very skeptical of things like the latte factor or uh, getting advice on how to save money and scrimp and save from millionaires or just Ivanka Trump in general. But I, I'm, 
I'm very concerned with marrying this sort of normative financial literacy advice where it's like, hey guys, this is how you can get out of debt, which is amazing and what Budget Girl does on her channel. And also acceptance of this being the life that we are supposed to have. It shouldn't be this hard for us. So I hope that this episode quenches the thirst of some of you guys who have been asking for this show to have a little more practical advice. Um, But also I'm still me and I remain very skeptical of this kind of thing. That being said, sure, have a budget. You should have a budget. Sure, like if I've personally sold clothes tons of times to make extra money. You know, it's hard to think about fighting the system when you're hungry because you haven't been able to buy food. So maybe it's a little of both and I should calm down or not, or I'm just going to continue to get progressively angrier. to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are also bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who've never paid full price for a designer sweater. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Afim Shapiro. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you... You guys know next week.